0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from John 11, verses 17 through 37. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside.
1: So You may have uh, seen the announcement for today's sermon, and things changed a little. Bob was actually supposed to be the one preaching today, but he has the flu, and he lost his voice, so I'm the pinch hitter today for him. Uh, many years ago, I was a youth pastor, and one of the places I was a youth pastor was in Ohio. And One of the events we did when I was a youth pastor was we did this clue search thing where I would break kids up into a bunch of groups, so there'd be four or five kids in a group and one adult leader each, and they'd have a car, and so we'd have 10 or 12 of these groups. And we'd give them all a clue, and they'd have to decipher that clue and then go to the location it sent them to. And when they got there, there'd be somebody to give them the next clue. And they'd all go different, kind of have a different route they would take, but in the end, they'd all end up at the same place. Well, one of the places along that that they would all eventually have to pass through was this little graveyard. Uh, and it was a little graveyard that had about five graves in it, um, like back in the 1800s on all the headstones uh, were the dates. And, and this graveyard had a little wall around it that was about two and a half, three feet high that completely encircled these um, five headstones. And it was located in a state park. I'm sure at one point it had been somebody's farm, but now it was a state park. And so you could park in the parking lot, and then there was a trail that would lead back to it and kind of end at the wall of the graveyard. And it went a couple hundred uh, yards back into the woods, deep into the woods, to get to this. Where over the years it kind of, all these legends and kind of shaped around this little graveyard. You know, high school kids would make up all these stories about it. And it was some rite of passage to go back there because of all these horrible things that supposedly happened at this graveyard. Well, in this clue search that night, that was one of the places kids had to go to get clues. And I was the one who was going to be waiting there to hand them the clue to go to the next place. Well, as I'm back there sitting in the dark waiting for my groups to show up, I hear one group coming through the woods, and I could tell one of the people in that group was this kid named Tommy. Tommy was, a, uh, Tommy was a guy who loved the center of attention. He was hilarious, good-hearted kid, but he just liked to be in the middle of everything all the time. And I could hear as they were coming through the woods that Tommy was trying to scare everybody and telling stories and making fun of them and trying to prove he was so tough and not scared. So as I heard them coming, I knew Tommy would be the first one to step into the graveyard. So what I did was where the path ended at the wall... I laid on the other side of the wall and laid down along the wall. And so when Tommy got to that wall and the rest of the group behind him, and he stepped over, I just reached out with both hands and grabbed his ankle. <laughs> and there was a blood-curdling scream that came out of that kid that I didn't think was possible. It tar- I thought I killed the poor kid. Yeah, it scared me. The funniest thing was when I stood up, all the other teens and the adult leader were gone. They had left poor Tommy to die out there at the (laughs) graveyard with me. I tell that story because that probably was not the healthiest way to teach my teenagers about the issues of death and dying. Uh, That probably imprinted something on Tommy for the rest of his life uh, related to that issue. I think in the United States, uh, probably many parts of the world, but I just know here better, I think that uh, our approach to death is, is, is kind of out of balance sometimes. We have this almost kind of voyeuristic distance when it comes to death. We kind of are infatuated with it in some ways. We're always kind of wanting to watch it and see it, and entertainment is filled with it. Yet when it comes to kind of real death, the death facing our, the reality of our own eventual death or the death of those we love, we often kind of keep a strange distance from it. Uh, today, for instance, when it comes to death, death more often happens in institutions far away from family and friends. Uh, again, there's a lot of reasons that's happened. It's not because it's always wrong. It's just it's different. We're not kind of face-to-face with it as much as we used to be. But but in the same way, time, we're, we're seeing it a lot. I saw this. Um, I'm teaching a class right now in my ACG on... Um, Dying and death, which actually sounds like it'd be a real downer class, but it's it's actually been a pretty fun class. I've really enjoyed it and uh, had wonderful attendance. I think a lot of other people have found it um, an interesting topic to think through. But one of the statistics I found in teaching that class was one from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and this study was back in 1971. So this is 46 years ago they did this study. And what they found, what they determined, and I'm not sure how they come up with these numbers, they determined by the age of 14, the average child has seen 18,000 people killed on television. Now, that was 46 years ago, so that's before video games, you know. So imagine how many deaths we witness now, the average kid by the age of 14, how many times they witness death. It's, it's in our face all the time, yet there's a strange distance, a strange kind of disconnect from it at the same time. The passage that we're going to look at today is a passage that kind of brings us face to face with death, asks us to consider it and to think about it. In this story, Mary and Martha, two sisters, their brother Lazarus is very sick and about to die, and so they send some people to send a message to Jesus to tell him. And and obviously they're telling him this because they want him to come. They believe he can heal Lazarus, and they want him to come. So it's about a day's journey from where they are To where Jesus is so they send these servants and tell him please come he's sick and and John as he's writing this story tells us a couple of times that Lazarus was someone that Jesus loved he dearly loved Lazarus and he dearly loved Martha and Mary this whole family was a family that Jesus was close to cared deeply about and so he gets the message and Jesus response is that to these messengers is that this will not end in his death. That what's going on with Lazarus will not end in his death. And that what will happen will be for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So that's the message that goes back. And then, after telling them that, we're told that Jesus waits two days. He intentionally stops and waits two days before he goes, and then it's another whole day's journey back there. So he's waiting three more days before he's going to be with them after receiving that message, and and it's been a day's trip for them to get it to him. So a total of four days, and it seems, as we go through the story, that Lazarus may have already actually died before Jesus even got the message, but we know at some point Jesus knew he was dead, uh, even though no one had told him yet, he knew that Lazarus had already died. Uh, the disciples are worried about Jesus going back there to Bethany. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. And at this point, the tensions between Jesus and the religious leaders were at their height. And they're worried about him going back. He said, last time you were there, you almost got stoned. Don't want you to go back. And Thomas is saying, I don't really want us to go back. We may all get killed if we go back with you. It's pretty tough. But Jesus says we're going to. And they're going to go back. But again, he waits two days. And then he makes the trip there. So then in verse 17, the passage you just heard read, Jesus arrives. And John points out that uh, when Jesus arrives at the tomb, it's been four days. And I think John highlights that because that was an important point, that it had been four days. Uh, What we do know from historians, it was a very common belief in that day that when someone died, their soul hovered around their body for three days. Now, it's not a biblical belief, but it was a common belief in that culture that the soul hovered around the body for three days, and that after three days, when the body began to decompose, then the soul moved on. So Jesus waits four days before he comes to the tomb. In other words, he waits until all the people there would have believed there's absolutely no hope of Lazarus being raised again to life. No hope whatsoever. He wants to make sure that they believe that before he steps into the scene. Uh, and you see that in Martha's response. So when, later when Jesus is saying, roll back the stone from Lazarus' tomb, Martha, you know, says, oh, this, there's a bad odor. I don't think she's worried about the smell. I love in the King James, it says, he stinketh. That was a better way of saying it. Uh, he's saying, he stinketh, so don't roll it back. Uh, I don't think she's worried about the smell. The point she's saying is, it's too late. It's just too late. It's been four days. There's no reason to do this now. And then Mary says, I mean, Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So there's kind of faith in that, right? She's saying if only you'd been here, uh, he'd still be alive if you'd have just come sooner. So she believes he could have saved him, could have healed him. And she still believes that whatever you ask will still happen. But then there's also this doubting because she's really kind of saying it's too late. There's really nothing you can do about it. She's a lot like all of us, right? I want to believe, but I'm having a hard time believing. I want to believe you could do it, but I'm not sure you could do it. And that's her response to him. And Jesus tells her that her brother will rise again. And and she goes, yeah, of course he will at the end times when everyone is resurrected, when, when all the followers of God are resurrected. And that was common Jewish belief. At the end times, the resurrection would happen. And she believed that. And then this beautiful statement from Jesus in response to that. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. She is saying, yeah, that day will come when he will, be ro- he will rise again. She's kind of believing, Jesus, if you'd have come sooner, you could have saved him. Maybe even you could have raised him from the dead if you'd have just come sooner. You could do that. And what Jesus is saying to her is, no, it's not I could make that happen it's whether it's the resurrection in the end times whether it's raising him now it's it's not i can do this i am the resurrection i am the life i am the very source of it i am the one who em- who life emanates from i'm not the one who could bring life to someone who asks the father and he will do this i'm the very source of it i am the life i am the resurrection whether it happens then whether it happens now however it happens life comes from me and what jesus is saying to her is i am god because she fully would have understand god is the only one from whom life emanates god is the one in scripture that it calls the living one throughout the old testament he is the one that life resides in in the psalms he is the fountain of life in genesis he is the one that his very breath breathes life into his creatures he is the source of life And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. He is the living one. And Jesus goes on to explain the rest of verse 25 and 26. He says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I am the source of life. And if you believe in me, if you are in me and I am in you, life is in you. Life. Life will never be taken away from you because it will be in you because I am life. If you abide in me, you abide in life. Nothing can take it away from you. In the last two months, I've conducted three funerals. And each of those funerals had been for somebody who um, knew Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I tell you, those are hard. They're still hard. One of them was a 28-year-old. Uh, really hard. Um, those are all hard. Funerals, I don't care what age somebody is. They're just hard. Uh, but I tell you what, those are a different experience when you're doing them for someone who knew Christ. They're hard, but boy, there, there's many ways they are a celebration also. Hardest part of my job? By far. The, the toughest thing I've ever had to do and have to occasionally do is when I have to do a funeral for someone who doesn't know Christ. That's a tough one. Uh, that's the part of my job I hate is when I have to do that. Because that's a, whole different, that's a whole different experience to walk into that. Death is a horrible, ugly thing. It truly is. Um, but man, death is a different thing when, when it is faced for someone who knows Christ and life is in them. One of the things that I think is interesting in this passage that I think we miss a lot of times is that um, Jesus loved these three people. He loved them dearly. He loved them deeply. And, and these people uh, who he loved dearly were suffering. These two sisters are suffering watching their brother suffer. Lazarus is suffering as he faces death, as he's sick, and sick to the point of death. I went to Ghana a few years ago with a group from the church, and one night when I was there, I got so sick, sickest I've ever been in my life laying in bed one night in Ghana. Got some Ghanaian something, and I'm laying in bed. And I mean, I truly thought I was going to die. Matter of fact, I was laying in a puddle of my own sweat and freezing to death at the same time. And it's funny, Terry McGuire, who many of you know, was in another bed in the same room. And I was almost so delirious at that point that I kept forgetting I could actually ask him to help. It was almost like just the thought never came to my mind. And I'm laying there, and I just kept thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna die. I can't feel this bad and not die. And, and it felt very calm, and I just kept thinking, I wonder what my wife's gonna do with my body, how's she gonna get it home? And somehow that all seemed like the most natural thought pattern at that point. You know, it didn't seem strange, it just seemed, yeah, what a strange thing. I probably wasn't anywhere close to death, but I gotta tell you, that was a miserable, miserable experience that I don't wanna go through again. This one who Jesus loved, we say, well, he's going to raise him from the dead. It's no big deal. This one who Jesus loved was suffering, suffering to the point he did die. He had to walk through that. His sisters had to watch him walk through that. We treat it like, well, if he raised him again, it doesn't matter. It is still a horrible thing that he allowed people he loves to go through, and he intentionally allowed them to go through it. He waited two days He let it happen intentionally he did that it is a horrible thing and so Mary says you know if you just come sooner this would I mean Martha says that well Mary Martha goes gets her sister Mary Mary comes out of the house where she's been mourning with a bunch of friends and family Mary comes out and what's the first thing she says Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died same thing why did you let this happen this is horrible Why this one you love, would you not have come sooner and stopped this? It says they were weeping. Uh, Mary and the people with her were weeping. That sounds so nice. It's actually the word there means they were wailing and crying out loud. So it's pretty common in that culture. When they mourn, they mourned. I mean, you knew it was happening. It was loud and out there. Uh, Matter of fact, they would even hire flutists and they would even sometimes hire mourners to join them to make the mourning bigger. You know, to make sure everyone knew we're in mourning. Um, And then it says, when Jesus saw them weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And in the NIV, that sounds so nice. It just sounds empathetic, right? Well, the word there um, that's translated deeply moved is actually a word that's, that's used to describe the snorting sound that a horse makes. It's a word that's used to describe anger or outrage. It's not empathy, it's not kind of a, oh, I feel bad for you. It was, this is making me mad. He, he looked at these people who were in mourning and he was angry. And so if you go to commentaries, you'll find 20 different explanations of why maybe he was angry. Because uh, none of us are sure, he doesn't tell us. Uh, but I don't think he's probably angry here because they're mourning and sorrow because I think Scripture encourages that. It actually tells us we're to mourn with those who mourn. There's plenty of examples in Scripture where we are called to be people who, who face the hard things with sorrow. Uh, and death is certainly a hard thing. Uh, some say it was their unbelief, that maybe it's because they didn't believe he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And maybe, maybe that was a small part of it. There's really nothing in the text that tells us that was what was going on. Um, And to be honest, their response seems to be one of kind of faith, kind of questioning, seems like a pretty appropriate response given what they've been told. I wonder if what angered him and frustrated him most was not simply the fact that he was watching the people he cares deeply about suffer in the face of death. I wonder if what angered Jesus wasn't the same thing that angers us when we face death. It is a horrible, ugly, devastating thing. Death itself makes us angry. When I'm with people who are mourning, they are sad, but they are often also angry because it is a horrible, ugly thing, and Jesus hates it. Scripture calls it his enemy. It calls it an intruder. Death is something he hates. He hates death. He hates the one who's behind death, who has created death, the evil one. And I wonder if that's not why he's angry in that moment. And then it says, those words that we all know, the one, the one verse everybody's memorized, Jesus wept. Uh, Jesus wept. And there, actually, the word is one of sorrow. It's of tears. It's not anger anymore. It's tears. And, and people around watching assume that he's crying because he's sad about his friend Lazarus. And I think that's probably a reasonable assumption. He wept. He is sad. Uh, and again, he's going to raise Lazarus back to life, so why would he be sad? Because his friend suffered and died because his friend had to taste the ugliness of death. These women he cared about had to watch their brother go through it. It is an ugly, horrible experience. As you watch people you love go through it, you know that. It is an ugly, horrible thing most of the time. And then the mourners, um, again, who are watching, they see him weeping, and, and they say, "'Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man "'have kept this man from dying?' So a third time now we have this idea. So the idea is, well, if you really loved him, why'd you let him die? Why didn't you come sooner? You know, he's done miracles before. He healed the blind man. Why didn't he come heal Lazarus? Everybody's asking the same question. Why didn't you do that? If it's so horrible, if you feel sad about it, if you hate death, why let this one you love go through it? And we don't get the answer um, given to us there, do we? And if the story goes on, we know the end of the story. He does raise Lazarus back to life. So I just want to leave you with three kind of points of application. Many more you could probably come up with. Here are the three I want to leave you with from this passage. The first one is this. As Christians, even though we are given the promise of eternal life, even though life is ours, death is still a horrible enemy. Death is still ugly. Death is still sad. And it deserves mourning of anger and sorrow. It deserves both. I many times have talked with Christians who seem to kind of have this idea that because, because Christ has conquered death, because he has taken on the worst death could throw at him and he defeated that enemy, that now death shouldn't matter to us, right? It should be nothing to us. We should smile as we walk through it uh, and people we love walk through it. That's, there's no example of that in Scripture. Again, in Romans, we're told to mourn with those who mourn. We're to enter into mourning with them. Uh, the Psalms, I've said this often, the Psalms are words in Scripture. They're probably the most kind of out, out loud together words. They were, they were songs. They were the words to be spoken as they made their way to Jerusalem. These are, these are community words meant to be said and sung out loud with others. In the most common kind of Psalm are Psalms of lament, Psalms of complaint and Psalms of sorrow. We're to say these things out loud with others. There's nothing wrong with mourning. Even though death has been defeated, death is still ugly. Death is still an enemy. Mourning's an appropriate response to it. Isaiah said that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It is different because of him. First Thessalonians 4 tells us that we don't grieve like people who have no hope. We still grieve, but we grieve as people of hope. And it is a different kind of grief. Walk into the funeral of a believer. It is sad. It is horrible. It is ugly. And it's different because we have hope. It changes the whole story. Lauren Winter is a professor at Duke Divinity School. She's a woman who was raised by a Jewish father and a Southern Baptist mother. Uh, But in her home as a child, she was raised as an Orthodox Jew. And then she converted to Christianity when she was in grad school. She writes this in one of her books. Church funerals, when they tell the truth, not only remember lovingly the lives of the departed, they also preach the gospel. They proclaim that Jesus is risen and insist that those who died in him shall be risen too. She's saying we do a good job of that in the church. We do a good job of telling the story. Christ is risen and so those who have died in Christ will also be risen. We, we do a good job of telling that and that's an important part of a Christian funeral. But then she goes on to write, "What churches often do less well is grieve. We lack a ritual for the long and tiring process that is sorrow and loss." So she talks about some of her Jewish traditions that she grew up with. She talks about how the burial, during this period of burial, and, burial in the Orthodox Jewish tradition. It's a time when those who have lost a, a loved one close to them are exempt from practicing the rest of the law they are allowed to during that period of time simply focus in on preparation for burial that's that's their only job during that time and then right after the burial, there's a seven-day period that they go through in that seven-day period uh, the person who is in mourning goes back into their home they don't wash their hair they don't clean up they don't put on makeup they don't listen to music they don't in, in a sense they pull out of the world they cover up all their mirrors with black cloths and then it says they sit on low chairs. They get that from the book of Job when Job's friends sat with them, sat with him in mourning. And people come in and sit with them in these low chairs and they're just silent with them. They don't speak. They simply are just with them in their sadness and in their mourning. And they do that for 7 days. So for 7 days they're kind of exempt from the world. People bring food into them so they don't have to leave their home. And it's 7 days of just silence mourning a loss and at the end of that seven days they have a meal and in that meal one of the things is an egg that they eat and that egg is to symbolize life and it's kind of representative of the fact that you're re-entering life life is still here death has happened but life is not gone and then there's a 30-day period following that and during that 30-day period then they they kind of start re-entering life so they go back to work and they go back to responsibilities um they begin to worship again back in the synagogue. And every week for those four weeks in the synagogue, there's, there's a way they re-enter worship a little more and a little more and a little more until the fourth week they have completely reintegrated back into worship. The point is everything is done kind of gradually. You're kind of stepping back. You have to step back into life. It's required of you. You have to do it in community. You don't get to do it by yourself. But it's slow. And then for a year, for that first year after they've lost someone close to them, uh, every day, two times a day, they pray the mourner's kaddish, the mourner's prayer. And that has to be done in the company of at least 10 people. You can't do that by yourself. So they go to the synagogue twice a day to pray this mourner's prayer, which requires they be with others in their mourning for a year. Now, I'm not saying we adopt all this and do that, but I do think there's some principles in that that are probably pretty wise. It's, it's remembering that mourning is a slow process. Facing loss and adjusting to that loss is a slow process. I tell people often that I'm talking with who have lost someone they love that, that grief will probably choose them more than they choose it. It kind of chooses you when it wants to. And what I find is it kind of chooses you in those moments when for whatever reason, the, the absence of that person is somehow evident. There's a gap. That gap is this is a moment when somehow I, they're the people I would want to tell. It's the gap where in this moment they would be here. It's why holidays are often so hard. There, there's moments when their absence stands out the strongest. In those moments, grief often just chooses us and there's nothing we can do about it. And I tell people often that I think the best thing you do is let it choose you. Just don't fight it. Let it choose you when it chooses you. You don't have to force it, but let it choose you because it's, it's a slow process. And those, those absences, you'll get better at them. You will adjust to life with their absence. It doesn't mean the absences will stop, but you will learn how to live with absence, with loss. But that takes time. That's generally a slow process. Second thing they do is they do it in community. And again, I think, I think in the Christian church, we're probably pretty good at first we're probably a good couple week group you know we're good at kind of being with people at 1st I'd say we do that really well I think in this church we do that really well we come alongside people and pretty immediately and in pretty strong ways a lot of times but I think a lot of times all of us and I think it's our whole culture has a hard time staying with it right remembering that people's loss didn't just go away after a couple of weeks it's slow and the third thing I would say that's good for us to remember is the fact that we, when we go through this, we not only don't go through it alone because there's a community around us, but we also have a God with us who understands, a God with us who hates death, a God with us who weeps when someone that He loves has to go through it. Um, we have a God who understands and a God who cares what we're going through. So, loss—it's worthy of mourning. Uh, mourning is a good and no a right response. Second. Mary and Martha and these Jewish mourners had one thing in common. They all couldn't understand why Jesus didn't step in and heal Lazarus before he had to go through all the suffering, and especially before he had to face this enemy death. Why didn't he do that? Uh, in this class that teaching ACG, one of the statistics I found most interesting was one that came from the Journal of American Medical Association where they did this research on um, people who were who were gonna choose kind of uh, aggressive medical treatment at the end of life. And and they especially looked at people who there really was very little hope it was gonna change anything to choose this very aggressive medical treatment. What they found was that religious people, and 95% of the people in their study were actually Christian religious people, that Christians were three times more likely to choose kind of these extreme medical measures than the rest of the population which was kind of strange. Why are we three times more likely to go to extreme measures medically than the rest of the population? seems like as Christians, because we know death is not the threat it is if you don't have Christ, we would be less worried about it. But as I thought about it, I I imagine that part of it is because as Christians, we have the stories. We pass on the stories that we should be passing on, that occasionally God does step in and miraculously heal. That occasionally God does do what is out of the ordinary and he heals and as Christians we are taught we love life and we should and we pray for life and we pray for healing and I think sometimes it's hard for us to accept death because because we've so been taught God is a God of life and he wants to bring life and he wants to give life and we're right he absolutely does And a lot of times just don't want to face that it could be anything else. And if God loves us and God loves life, then of course God will always heal. And I love the stories where he does, and he occasionally does. But we also know it's not always the case. He doesn't always. He doesn't always heal. He doesn't always rescue us from death. That many times, even though we love God, we still must go through that hardship, those horrible hard things, or watch people we love go through them. So the question that they're raising and the same question I hear raised all the time by people is, how could God love us, hate death and know how horrible it is and allow those he loves to have to walk through it and walk through suffering and walk through tragedy? Now, like others, I am going to quickly say I do not have the answer to all that. That's people a lot wiser than me have tried to answer that question and uh, have failed. Uh, But this case... In this story, he tells us why he allowed them to suffer. Now, he doesn't tell us all the time, and I think we get in a lot of trouble when we try to make all those connections for everybody. When we try to tell everybody, well, you're suffering for this reason, or he's letting this happen for this reason. We get in trouble because he often, we don't know. But in this case, he actually tells us what he's doing. In this case, he says he says in verse 14, as he's speaking to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. That's why. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't there. As much as I think he longed to be there, I'm glad I wasn't. You want to know why? Because I want you to believe. Because I want you to see the glory of Jesus Christ that you might believe. Death is a horrible threat. It's an ugly thing that none of us, suffering, sickness, none of us want people we love to go through as horrible and ugly as that is, I think this passage reminds us there's a bigger threat. That, that the only reason I would love someone and let them go through something hard is if going through the hard kept them actually from something worse. Kept them from something even uglier and more threatening. And the most threatening thing is the failure to believe. The failure to have faith in Jesus Christ. That is the worst possible threat. And he says he is willing to do anything to keep us from that threat even to wait those two extra days before he goes. So, I think that uh, morning's appropriate. I think that sometimes God, in this case at least, God let us go through some hard things, not because he doesn't care, but because there are worse threats that sometimes we need to pay attention to. And in this case, even when he's talking to his disciples, he so we're already believed and we're following him. He still is telling them their belief. He wants them to see that they might believe, that their belief might deepen and grow. This isn't a just be- the goal is to believe because now we have life and we're safe. To know life is to continue to deepen in your belief. If you want to live a full, complete life, it's to believe, it's to continue to grow, it's to continue to believe. It's what he longs for his children. And then the third thing, application I want to make is the most obvious one. And that is eternal life can be yours today. It can. I talk to people often about this Is that um, as people are going through loss. One of the things I often say to them, if the person they lost was a follower of Christ, I often say to them, you know, that we think sometimes about death being a believer dies and then eternal life begins. That's not the truth. What Scripture teaches is the moment Christ came into your life, your eternal life began. Death will never take that away from you. Never. It can never touch it. If Christ is in you, life is in you. I don't care what happens to your mortal bodies. It cannot take that life away because Christ is life. Nothing can take it away. Horrible as death is, it can't steal away life for those who know Christ and have Christ in their life. That can be our possession today, not someday, today. That life begins the day we choose Christ. And that's not just the life that keeps us from ultimate eternal death. That's the life we get to know and enjoy and have a fuller life today if we choose it. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I hope with Martha our response would be, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And Scripture, scripture actually talks about two deaths. Scripture talks about the death of our mortal body. It talks about that death, and even as believers we go through that. And, and it's a separation. It talks about that being a separation in some ways from the physical world, from our physical bodies. But Scripture actually talks about what it calls a second death, another death. And it's actually the bigger threat. As horrible as physical death is, the spiritual death or this death that is a separation from God, the second death that Scripture talks about, it is by far the bigger threat. And God says He will do anything to save us from that second threat, even send His Son to face death and to suffer and to die, that we might be saved from it. That's the real threat. That's the fact that today, if you choose Christ, it's no longer a threat. It's gone. Eternal life is yours today. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us um, that we would be people who would see your glory, that we would see the glory of your Son. And Father, our belief would grow and deepen um, that would shape every part of our being. Father, for those who don't know your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, I pray your Spirit would open their minds and their hearts. Father, they might turn their life over to you and find life in you. Thank you for that remarkable gift. In your blessed name, amen.